0: All right, if you got your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 2. If not, it'll pop up here on the screen. We encourage you to take notes on your, on your phone or in a journal on what stands out to you and what you think the Lord might be saying this morning. We're jumping over to Matthew chapter 2 this week. Last week we looked at the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. And in some ways this is a beautifully contrasting story with the same God in and through it all. Let's look at chapter 2 verses 1 to 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king... Behold, magi from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. All right, so much in here that's interesting and surprising and beautiful, similar to the sense you get when you read Luke chapter 2 and the shepherds, when you get to know some of the realities of how shepherds were viewed in the culture at the time. It just paints this picture of the vast umbrella of God's grace. As the shepherds were viewed essentially as the, the peasants among peasants of the Jews, the irreligious people who were too busy working to take time to, to follow the community practices of worship. They gained a reputation of maybe they were kind of thieves as they wandered around and kind of if they came through your pasture. Watch out, they might take something. And so to such a degree, they were not allowed at the first century time to give a testimony in court because they were considered unreliable. Yet God appeared to them and gave them the first assignment to share the testimony that the Christ had been born. Just this incredible turning upside down of, of human expectations in order for God to give the message that his grace is so much bigger than we could possibly imagine. And once again, we'll see that picked up by Matthew as he tells the story of these mysterious figures to come and and give gifts. They are magi from the East. And so let's dig into that a little bit for a moment and just similarly we'll gain that picture of the vastness of God's grace and then I'd love to spend just a little time thinking about the, the lessons of the Magi in similar ways to the shepherds and they have so much to, to teach us as we have reflect on their life and how they responded to God's grace so to the Magi. But that word Magi may be translated wise men. In its real origin it's the word magician that you might recognize. It's a Persian king or slash kind of deified king of Magus. It's specifically a member of the Persian priestly caste. And so it has kind of this long pagan tradition. These are not good Jews coming to worship the Messiah. It has a long Etymological, meaning like the root of the word has this history back in this pagan, priestly, kind of almost godlike caste of, of kingliness. They would be magicians, wise men of the, of the Persian Empire, enchanters, enchanters, wizards. And even there's this interesting historical sense of jugglers. So that's, uh, you know, don't try juggling. It's a pagan art. <laughs> they are the possessors of special secret wisdom. That was kind of the sense. Concerning the, the even found in the meaning, meaning of life and, and cosmic events found in the stars. They would search the stars. So kind of bringing it a little bit more into the, the specific context of this passage, it's most likely that they, kind of that, that Persian history of, of astrologers, kind of stargazers, magicians, kind of somehow these priests connecting with power. It was really probably the at a Babylonian stargazer from the east. And so you go east from Jerusalem, as the Jews did in exile into Babylon, And you might probably find now in that first century Judaism, in that context, you would find Babylonian astrologers who probably had encounters with the Jews when the Jews were in exile. And so they were these kind of mystical, you know, I was going to say creatures, (laughs) it's not the right word, figures who sought truth in the stars Now let's be clear this was not looked upon positively by the Jews There is ancient Jewish writings that says he who learns from a magus is worthy of death So you take that present day at the time conception of the Jews the magus is singular for the magi One who learns from the Magi is worthy of death. And then you have Matthew present. In Matthew chapter 2, just straightforward. After Jesus was born in Jerusalem of Judea in the days of Herod, behold, Magi from the east... So looking to Babylon, came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And they're right. (laughs) So this has got to be really, really unsettling to the Jewish listener. The Magi. The stargazers, the astrologers, those of kind of this ancient line of mu- mu- musicians, watch out for musicians, magicians going back into the Persian, Persian Empire and the Babylonian Empire, these stargazers and astrologers, they in the stars saw. That the Jewish Messiah was going to be born. And so they went out on a journey to find him and worship the Messiah. And they were 100% right. I don't know how to interpret that other than similar to the shepherds who were looked upon and despised by their own people as ill-religious and not worthy to even give a testimony in court, God says, I choose you to be the first ones to give my testimony that my Messiah has come. Similarly, we just see this unbelievable vast grace of God that yes, God is at work among the, the pagan astrologers and somehow it's presented as just a fact that the stars predicted the coming of the Messiah, and these magi saw it and they came to worship the king. It just is meant to be this humbling picture of nobody has a monopoly on the Messiah. It's a precursor for what Matthew would continue to point to in the rest of his gospel, which is the Gentiles have the faith that impress Jesus. And that we can't simply by birth or inheritance assume that we've got it all together and we've got it all right. And that is continued even in this story right here to be fleshed out. So let's look for a few minutes here at some gifts from the Magi. Some gifts that they bring to us. Some wisdom that the Magi offer us. In a sense, they offer it to Christ before we ever do. And in that, they can be great examples of what we, to this day, can offer Christ. And the first thing that stands out is their sincere seeking. Seeking. Of the Messiah. Now God did not specifically speak to the Messiah like he did the shepherds with a angelic God did not speak to the magi, to the magi in the same way that he spoke to the shepherds with an angelic vision, a voice from heaven. What stands out is that they sought God. The magi were seeking God. They were seeking for truth. Now we can assume, like Jesus said, that the harvest is plentiful. It's a workers that are few because the the spirit of God is out on the move. Or what does he say right after that? that? That God is seeking those. And as Jesus tells a Samaritan woman who, again, is just all sorts of offensive to the religious folks of the day. He first reveals himself as the Messiah to her in John four twenty three, and says, The Father is seeking those who will worship in spirit and in truth. Just an unbelievable phrase. God, the God of the universe, is seeking those who will worship in spirit and in truth. God is seeking worshipers. And so I see in that a picture of God's grace at work way before many people ever see it. God's grace at work in the Magi. Putting in them that that hunger, that longing for something real, something true. And maybe they're looking in 99 of the wrong ways, but then they find that one that is the ultimate truth of the universe, the ultimate reality that God has sent His Son in the Messiah, they have found truth. They are truth seekers. It's really an amazing picture. They were hungry, longing, groping, as Romans 1 says, groping. The Gentiles longing, groping for truth, groping for the law, the truth in the law. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now they may not have had it all together. They may not have had the law. They may not have not had all the truth. But they were hungry. They were seeking. They were searching. They were ready. And when the Messiah's star somehow lined up in the heavens, which God did, they saw it. They saw the truth of God revealed and they came and sought after the king, the Messiah. We don't know exactly what that star was and there's lots of very interesting interpretations about astrological phenomenon that were happening at that point And there's some interesting videos out there. I encourage you to, to look up the, the star of Bethlehem and, and lots of various really intriguing and interesting Ideas about what it could have been—from a, you know, a Halley's comet to a supernova exploding star to—I think it's—is it Saturn and uh, let's see, where is it? Saturn and Jupiter converging, which is weird because that's like astrological stuff. But it goes back to—that's kind of like this, these stars converging that that produce a, a savior, a king. I don't know which one of these the 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 magi saw. But God's word affirms that they saw the truth of the Messiah being born. And the stars told them so. And they were seeking, longing, looking for truth. And so they followed the truth that God had revealed in his creation. And they found the Messiah. And there is a stark contrast in the text on purpose that continues to affirm that these are seekers of truth. These are seekers of God. The chief priests and Sadducees, it says, the the religious leaders of the day were called together by Herod. They are the ones who are supposed to be whom the people can look to as the religious examples, as the seekers of God's truth, who know exactly where the Messiah was to be born when the Herod king asked, hey, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? They, they know right away, oh, Michael 5.2 says it's supposed to be in Bethlehem. And they quote the scripture. Yet when it happened, they completely missed it right under their nose. And that's an intentional contrast that Matthew's drawing. That the religious leaders, with all of their knowledge about God, and about the scriptures, missed it when the Messiah came. And you got these pagan Gentiles looking to the stars, and they found the Messiah. And it's really begging the question as they're bumbling around missing the Messiah, and you have the Magi come. This passage is screaming, so who is wise? Who then is wise? Is it the complacent religious ones with all of their knowledge? Or is it the hungry truth seeker who's groping for something real? Where are you in this passage? We can't let familiarity breed complacency. That's what had happened to the religious leaders who knew so much. I'd much rather be the magi who don't have it all together, who don't have it figured out, but they are seeking for something real. And that's what they bring to Christ. This childlike hunger to seek out the truth. I would even say they, they have this spirit of adventure upon them, this adventurous seeking after the truth. And not an adventure in just kind of a trite way. Adventure in the sense of they are willing to risk something. I mean, to take a journey of that magnitude, that length, that time to go into a foreign land, to present yourself to a king and say, hey, there's another king that's, that's coming. I mean, these are all things that cost them greatly and potentially risk their lives. This is not a safe journey. It's not safe to present yourself to Herod and say, Ah, the stars have said that the king, the real king, has been born in this area. Do you know him? You don't? (laughs) It's not a smart move to do in the face of a king. Kings are notoriously not only prideful but, but scared that someone is going to come and take them over. There is an insecurity about your, your place as king. It is, it is the greater one coming? So when this entourage rolls into town and says, Yeah, halfway across the world, the stars are declaring that the real king of the Jews has been born. That is a risk. but their reward is great. Here we are 2,000 years later looking back on their lives and saying, look at the way God was at work. God was with them. They were seeking the truth when there was, in a sense, so little truth to be found in their, in their culture where they were at, yet they were groping for, longing for, willing to go on adventure to seek truth, and they it." And I really believe there is such an encouragement, if not a challenge for all of us. What are you seeking after? What are you willing to take risks to find? I mean, um, unless you've barely got a pulse, unless you're barely alive, unless you're deeply in depression, then you are seeking after something. There's a reason why you get up in the morning. It's kind of an inherent reality of human nature. If there's any hope in you whatsoever, you're seeking after something. You believe there's something that can be found that makes life worth living. And my my encouragement to all of us, the biblical encouragement to all of us is, so aim high. Aim the highest you can possibly find. Don't aim low at what you're seeking, aim the highest. And that's where these magis, even if it takes risk, even if it's an adventure that forces you to leave country, to leave safety, to get out of your comfort zone, isn't it worth it at the end of your days to say, I know that I went on that adventure to seek for the absolute highest truth that could be found. And you've probably all encountered that at some level in your life where you've you've had that zeal, you've had that boldness, you've had that longing to seek after truth, to seek after God. And you've encountered God most likely. And if not, you're probably at that place like the Magi where you're hungry and you're longing and you're seeking. And whether it's you've sought and have found, or you are seeking, we are all in the same boat in the sense that there is no less truth to be found than from when we first began. Because if God is infinite, which he is, and the Apostle Paul talks about things like eternity is an increasing encounter of the love of God, which is so vast and so wide and so deep that it is going to take an eternity to experience it all. So that starts to melt your mind a little bit. And then if Jesus says eternal life is simply knowing God, well then when we have encountered God, when we know God, we're not done. <laughs> when, God, when we find God and God finds us, are we done no, it's that that is just the beginning. Are the magi done? No. That adventure had had a moment of encounter, but hopefully they go home and they've got the good news to share that we found the truth, but now the journey really just begins. That eternal life of knowing God in increasing measure. And so it's it's an incredible challenge. Encouragement that, that the horizon of God's truth to be found and sought is, in a paradoxical way, still equally always before us. And what that means is, if we are seeking God, there's no reason to ever be bored. <laughs> God is not done revealing himself to you. You have not encountered the fullness of God if God seems boring, we're the problem. There is an infinite horizon of getting to know God that is still in front of us. So in in that sense, the the magi show us this example of just that willingness to passionately seek after God. Like maybe for for some of us who've walked with God for a while, we need to take on that childlike posture that says, like I've never encountered God before, I want to be hungry to seek Him and find Him again. And find Him in greater measure. And then wake up the next day with the same kind of hope and zeal that I am still alive and therefore I still have the privilege to have that adventurous spirit to seek after Him again today. And that that really becomes a, a posture for our life is to seek God. So the magi show us that. Another beautiful truth that they reveal is that we have the opportunity to reveal, to excuse me, to offer Christ our deepest reverence. It says in Matthew 2.11, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They fell down. The words there in the Greek reveal this sense of falling on your face in reverence and submission. They fell on their face to the ground. Before the child king, in deep reverence and awe of what God had done. Recognizing they were in the presence of God. And again, it begs this question of who is wise. Whereas Herod, the earthly king, has a desire to kill the Messiah child. The true wise king's get in his presence and have such a sense of deep reverence and awe that they fall on their face in worship it reminds me of proverbs 9:10 which says the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom who is wise The fear of the Lord. The one who would have awe and reverence for God. That's where wisdom begins. If you can't bend a knee, feel the deep sense of awe, reverence, power, majesty, and fall on your face before the one true king, the Bible says then you're a fool. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it goes perfectly with the Old Testament sense of being in God's presence. The word glory is kabod. And the literal meaning of it is weight, heaviness. So when God's presence manifests... When God's presence is made known to the human heart, mind, body, and spirit, what you will sense is weight. And that fits perfectly with this fear of the Lord. The awe, the reverence is the beginning of wisdom. Because if you're in the presence of God... You feel the weight of his glory, meaning your heart wants to bow down. There's a weight on you. You recognize that the proper response to being in the presence of greatness, something far greater than you, is for your heart, mind, and spirit, and body, maybe even, to just lay down, bow down. There is one greater than I, John the Baptist declares. I'm not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. It's this deep sense of his worth, his glory, his power, his weight. And it is right for the human heart to bend the knee, to bow the heart, to recognize it's not all about us. We're not the ones with the power and glory. And so the Magi leave this great example of do we carry a deep sense of Deep sense of humble reverence where where we might not go around falling on our faces, but, but that's not a bad thing to do at times, and 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 to prostrate ourselves before God, to get on a knee, or at least to, to sense it in our hearts that there's this deep weight that we feel about who God is, where it just simply says, I know I'm not king. I'm not the creator. I'm not the one with the power. I'm not the one worthy of praise. I don't have it all together. I don't create anything. I don't have the power to make myself right or anybody else's right. Life right. I find myself when I bow down in the face of the one who is worthy. This deep sense of reverence of a, of a greatness so above us. It's a beautiful challenge for us because we are not a reverent culture. We are a consumer culture that says that everything is so, it's just about you in the moment, how it makes you feel. You're at the center. Shouldn't cost you much. It should be cheap. You deserve it. Just, Lift yourself up at the center. That's just what our culture says. I'm not saying you say that or I say that. I'm saying that's the, the water we breathe as the, the fish in the culture. And it's dangerous because Jesus can become really cheap. It's just like, oh, he's, he's my bro, he's my buddy. He's, he's, you know, there, was that, there was a T-shirt that just bugged me so much like 10 years ago. We can, we can put that up there. And all these Hollywood stars were starting to wear this trendy T-shirt that it says, Jesus is my homeboy. And it was just this, just this very cheap sense of kind of like, he's a cool guy you can hang out with and maybe he said some cool stuff, but he's just kind of like a bro. You know, it's like, and it's weird because in a classical sense, even, actually, if you look up and research that, the where this phrase came from, it was apparently a, a young man who prayed to God in a moment where gang members had a gun at his head, and he said, Jesus, save me, and, and somehow he, the, he was delivered from that moment, and he felt like Jesus was so with him and close to him that Jesus is my homeboy. But that's not what this is, and it's so ironic because, like, in a sense, that phrase homeboy, whereas... Someone you can relate with, right? They're from your neighborhood. You know them. Ironically, that's incredibly close to what the incarnation is all about in that the God of the universe wants to relate with us. So he took on flesh. But that's not what this is. This is a very cheap Jesus. This is a very much just like, he's my bro. I think he's kind of cool, but I owe him nothing. And in that sense, we have to be so careful that we don't, like, Jesus is not my bro, my homeboy, my best bud. Like, it's certainly not, that's not where it starts. Like, I do believe that Jesus wants to be unbelievably personal. Like, look at the shepherds. We looked at them last week. And it was not an irony at all that to the ones whom we're told by their culture They are not worthy of even giving a testimony in court about a crime situation because their testimony, their words, are unreliable. That's how low their character is. No coincidence whatsoever that the God of the universe appeared to them and said, I am making you the first ones to give testimony about my Messiah. That is the unbelievably personal nature of God where he is at work to achieve both his huge, grand purposes in the world, and at the same time, he wants to include you in a way that's so personal. Like the shepherds are walking away, said, we're not even worthy to give a testimony, except the God of the universe just said, will you please go give testimony? And you got to know that's personal. They walked away feeling like maybe we're God's favorites. He's so good to me. And I, if you know us at all, you know that we love to look at how personal God wants to be to each and every single one of us. But the relationship begins, and it's got to have at at its foundation that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that awe and reverence, that He is God, that the King of the kings is present, that I come into His presence and... and, and the. (laughs) My spirit needs to bow down to find its place in reality. And from a place of of humility, of reverence, of awe, as the shepherds had, the first thing it says is they were terrified. It wasn't like, oh sweet, bro from heaven showing up, hey buddy. No, they were terrified. There's the awe, the reverence, the bow down. Before the king of the universe. And then, then, the angels love to say, fear not. Rise up. I've got some personal good news for you. And it's it's the same sense. It's for us, it's that reverence that the magi show. That's where authentic relationship begins. It's a beautiful picture for us. The wise men from the east... Show us the beginning of wisdom as they fall down on their face before the king. So it's just a beautiful encouragement with us. May we carry with us now and in increasing measure this deep, humble reverence. It says my heart loves to get in its proper place by bowing down. Before my king. And lastly, what we see is they love to offer Christ their greatest treasure. Going into the house in Matthew 2.11, it says, They saw the child with Mary his mother. They fell down and worshiped him. They opening, then opening their treasures, they offered gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And Just talk about a gift that costs something. It just flows right in that beautiful sense of he is worthy of everything. He is worthy of our greatest seeking. He is worthy of our greatest reverence. He is worthy of our greatest devotion. Are we giving him our best? That's what those gifts represent. Are we giving him our absolute best? best or have we given those gifts to others and then kind of wherever it's convenient or left over it's like oh yeah god oh yeah god (laughs) anytime that's in your brain god has better for us oh yeah god i should probably it's like no it's our best seeking our best reverence our best devotion and then oh yeah other things And all of this leads to that same result. It's so interesting. The same result as the shepherds. Great joy. In Matthew 2.10 it says, They rejoiced rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Just like the shepherds. In Luke 2.10, Fear not, for behold, I bring you the gospel of great joy. That will be for all the people. The consistency with Luke and Matthew as he's working in the most unlikely of peoples, demonstrating the grace of God and how God is going to great lengths to invite us into relationship with him that starts now and goes all the way into mind-blowing eternity. And as we offer to Christ... Our adventurous seeking and our deepest reverence and our greatest devotion. By his grace, we're drawn into encounters with him, relationship with him. And we will grow in what it says the Magi experienced exceedingly great joy. They rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Again, this speaks to the heart and nature of God. To be in relationship with God is not to get to know the mad, mean rule giver who's up there chucking lightning bolts when you do bad. No, it's to know the God who your soul is made for. And to be in relationship with that God, you will increase with exceeding and great joy. The word great in the Greek is a fun one. It's mega. So mega joy. Mega joy is God's heart for you because that's God's nature. And as you get to know that living God who is a fountain overflowing with joy, you will partake in that joy of knowing God. And I love finishing there because that's, that's a world changer. To know that God gave a gospel of great joy. And to encounter him means our lives Even in the midst of the challenges and the trials and the problems, as we encounter him and get to know him, our lives will grow and move upward in mega joy. Not because everything's easier, but because we're getting to know the one who it's all about. And that our soul comes alive in finding the Messiah, finding the one who even the stars speak the truth about. Our soul will find its place. And that beautiful relationship with Jesus Christ, the King of kings and lords of lords. So let's seek him with everything we got this Christmas season and into the year. Let's pray as we close our time.
1: I felt the Lord brought a verse to mind. And it's actually the end of Jeremiah twenty nine eleven that I think oftentimes just gets glossed over and forgotten. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. God, you are worthy. You are so worthy. Forgive us for not valuing you all the time in the way that we should. But we thank you just that for your grace, that you know that humanly we're incapable of giving you the perfect worship. But by your blood, our worship is perfect. So God, we just invite you to come and to make your worth, your goodness, your value, so real to us, to open the eyes of our hearts like Ephesians talks about, to peel back the layers of the onion of our heart, to allow us to see you more clearly, to know you more fully, to seek you with all of our hearts. That as we seek you, we know that we have the promise that we will find you and we will taste and see that you are good and you taste so much better than everything else. You are worthy.
0: And under that vast and beautiful umbrella of grace that includes the the shepherds and the magi, thank you that we are included. The gospel is a great joy for all the people to whom you went to the cross for Jesus. And as we receive you, we receive your blood as our righteousness, we stand blameless before you, as Colossians 1 said, and under that vast umbrella of your grace, we ask for your Holy Spirit to impart to us, to make us those adventurous, zeal-filled seekers of your truth, seekers of you. May we be the fulfillment of that verse in Jeremiah 29, 11 to 13 that says, you have plans to prosper us and not to harm us and we will seek you and find you when we seek you with all of our hearts. We ask for your grace by the power of your spirit to be upon us to be seekers with all of our hearts that nothing would be a stumbling block in our lives from us being seekers Of you, passionate seekers of you with all of our heart for the rest of our life.
1: This is going to feel like a weird word. Worry is worshiping something else. And he wants to meet us in whatever we're worried about. He wants us to encounter him and to worship him over whatever that is, and to believe and to partner with him that his kingdom is coming. He wants us to see it, see whatever the concern is through his eyes. Um, this might feel weird too. I feel like God wants us to take a moment to repent for wherever. We have been worrying and worshiping something else as greater than our God. And and so, God, we're just going to take a moment. And we believe that you can take care of it. But, God, we're going to take a moment right now. Yeah. So just give it over to him. Ask him to renew your mind to see his worth, to teach you to look in his eyes, to see the problem with his eyes, to see the circumstance with his eyes, and to say yes and amen. Arrive now, kingdom of God. Come into being now, will of our Father. We will no longer walk in fear and worry, worshiping something else. We will worship you, God. Show us the way. Thank you for your grace. Yeah, in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, amen. I will sing a new song.
0: I will sing a new song. I will dance a new dance like David.